It's the start of July, so we're talking about some great movies for the summer season here on Script to Screen. Mark and I talk about some of our favorite movies for this time of the year while beating the heat. Remember, you can join the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and RSVP for an online screenwriters forum. If you're reviewing scripts, getting feedback on fellow writers work while networking with them as well. We hope to see you on one of them. Enjoy the podcast. So I want to give a welcome to screenwriters, aspiring writers, film lovers, and everyone in between to the latest episode of Script to Screen, the Boston Screenwriters Group podcast, hosted today by myself, Jeffrey Chang-Stewart, and Mark Liddell, where we come in and discuss and give a screenwriter, filmmaker, and film lovers perspective on movies and various other forms of media-related topics. Whenever you're giving us a listen, morning, noon, or night, we hope it be a great part of your listening cues. Now, today, uh, it's just uh, Mark and I... Uh, Kenyatta had uh, something to come up on uh, in his schedule, but uh, I'm sure he'll love to chime in. But uh, I guess I can just start with the intros. So I've been a co-organizer of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over five years, helping out the founder, Deborah Sharif, with the meetups, where we help any level of experienced screenwriter peer review their screenplays with other members. I'm also a local filmmaker on the lower end of budgets, but I'm uh, always up coming up with, movies idea, with movie ideas and ready to film. Now, with all that settled, I'll, I'll pass it off to Mark. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lydell, uh, longtime Boston educator, lover of films. I've been doing this podcast with Jeff and Kenyatta for the past year or so now. Um, and, you know, I, I have a love for all things movie, all things film. And I am, well, a, not struggling, but um, at one point an aspiring uh, actor on stage and uh, aspiring screenwriter. Um, but that has not really happened to, I guess, my uh, pleasure in this life. Maybe next life I'll, I'll uh, maximize those opportunities. But uh, just happy to be here with you guys and talk about uh, today's topic, which is summer movies. Absolutely, yes. So uh, it's getting to be that time of the year. Uh, the weather's warming up and uh, you know more uh, outdoor events are, are being scheduled and uh, uh, rescheduled from last year. And uh, everybody's out and about. It's getting hot again. It's getting hotter, especially here on the East Coast. Um, but uh, yeah, so we decided uh, we thought it would be a great time uh, to talk about summer movies. Uh, but since we don't have a full sort of uh, panel, uh, we're just going to truncate this a little bit by just talking about uh, one apiece, uh, sort of two that sort of uh, define both our sort of childhoods and uh, sort of the beginnings of our fascinations with movies. Um, uh, and um, like right at that, that, that nostalgia sweet spot uh, for I think both of us and so maybe I'll just uh, I think uh, we can go chronologically I guess with uh, uh, with Mark's choice uh, with uh, his pick for one of the I, I, I agree with him one of the best uh, summer movies uh, uh, one of the best summer movies that and we'll probably define uh, summer blockbuster in fact Right, right. As a child, probably the earliest recollection of seeing a movie trailer was, was for a movie um, that you already prefaced as the, the first summer blockbuster. Blockbuster, sorry. Um, and of course, that's Jaws, right? Um, I was in single digits, um, and I don't remember much about the trailer other than um, that iconic scene, which is the first part of the movie where a young woman is taking an evening swim or night swim, twilight swim, 
uh, and she realized there's, there's something beneath the water and that look on her face. And that was enough, that, that, that little bit was enough to say, yep, I wanna see that. And I was I'm a little kid saying that. And then the more I hear about this movie, the more trailers I see on TV for the, for the movie, I'm just, I mean, I don't know what word you can describe to, to talk about maximum fear. I don't know what term that might be, but I had that so much so that believe it or not, I was afraid to swim in lakes. I, I grew up in Michigan where there aren't any oceans. I was afraid to swim in lakes and rivers. And even got to the point where I was afraid to, to take a bath. Again, I'm a, I'm a young kid. I thought for some, for some reason, uh, the shark from Jaws would make its way into my plumbing and up into the tub somehow. Um, that's how much you know fear was instilled by the trailer. And apparently it scared a lot of people into the theaters because prior to, to Jaws being made, the movie industry kind of declared summer as a lost season. They, they understood folks would be going to the beach and going on family vacations, uh, enjoying life in the outdoors instead of life inside of a theater. Um, but with you know all of the buzz that Jaws created, and then you know of course to give you guys some context, you know back in the day when I was a kid, you would go to the movies and stand in line in front of the box office to get your ticket and go inside. There was no like pre-ordering tickets. There was no internet. Um, you weren't able to like uh, pay for them over the phone and have a, a will call and pick them up. No, you had to stand in line to get your ticket. And in theaters around the country, many of them were, were you know, single or, or, or two screen theaters because they didn't have the multiplexes. People would stand in line and the line would wind around the corner uh, sometimes even laughing about how big the corner was to get into this movie, to buy a ticket. And with that, the summer blockbuster was born. And what we're experiencing now in terms of, you know, this being the season to roll out a lot of big tentpole films, started with the granddaddy of them all, which was Jaws, which is an inadvertent summer blockbuster at that. And I guess I'll get into the, the kind of unsuspected, um, effect of Jaws in a bit, but didn't know if you want to talk about your particular pick and we can get into some of the, the um, aspects, in my case at least, of the industry, how the industry was moved by it. I kind of want to what's at the table or what the appetite of folks for this or do, should I go through the whole thing? Talk about my whole experience. What, what do you think, Jeff? Hmm. No, no, I, we could stay on Jaws for a little bit because, I mean, it is, uh, you know, it's, uh, as you put it, uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the, it's the, the one that defined a sort of summer blockbuster and the summer season for movies. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not Spielberg's uh, first first feature. He did a, he did a, a TV movie, uh, The Duel, which is uh, actually a nice little, like, uh, uh I can't remember the actor. Oh man, uh, I, but it's a nice little uh, road rage movie, right? That uh, uh, that uh, sort of uh, helped establish sort of the sort of sort of the Hitchcock vibes that he would certainly uh, like uh, influence us for, for kind of the rest of his career, at least uh, the early part of his career. And uh, but then we got Jaws. You know, uh, there's uh, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure we're going to go go into sort of uh, like all of the the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, you could do a whole there's there's pretty much you could do a whole movie just on that uh, with uh, you know of course uh, the big thing the shark didn't work and uh, that led to uh, sort of creating a new sort of way of uh, 
portraying the monster, uh, you know, the, this massive, you know, uh, 20, 30 foot shark that uh, just comes up and attack people that are just, you know, just happily swimming along, uh, trying to enjoy their summer vacation, uh, you know, around uh, July 4th and, uh, you know, Amityville, which is, uh, you know, uh, Martha's Vineyard sort of doubled for that uh, in uh, back when they were shooting it. But uh, no, Jaws is ap it's absolutely like one of the just, uh, yeah, it certainly encapsulates uh, just, uh, you know, the, the summer season, uh, both uh, uh, movie-wise and uh, what, what uh, well, uh, both and on screen, um, uh, sort of a New England summer even, uh, so it works perfectly mm -hmm. for uh, where we are, uh, where we are at the moment. Uh, so so the thing is also, what's really interesting about Jaws is the, it's almost like, um, it had nine lives I mean, because in many ways the, the film almost didn't get made, at least made it as we understand it, you know, now. Um, you talk about the, the animatronics, uh, the, the, the kind of um, mechanical shark or sharks, they had more than one, but, um, you know, they would not operate or function as they had planned. Um, so they had to get creative with how they were going to shoot this movie. And it's only out of that, that um, creativity that I think that the legend of Jaws is born. I, I, I think that if things had worked as they should have, it would have been a lesser movie. I think that not having the shark built the tension, not having the shark, you know, maybe wonder where is the shark or, or um, they even of course use uh, at some point some, some floating barrels as a proxy, I guess, for the shark or at least a way for you to know where the shark was. And um, again, not seeing it made it more terrifying until the moments they did reveal, the big, the big reveal for the shark. I think about the moment where uh, you have the, um, the Roy Scheider character kind of feeding chum over the side of the boat. And here comes the, the head of, of, of the shark appears out of the water. And it's like, wow, that's like the first real glimpse of the shark. And that's gotta be two thirds, it's about three quarters of the way into the movie, right? But yet and still, it's an iconic film with, with the villain kind of being shown in full three quarters of the way through. Like, what does that say, I guess, for uh, those who make films who want to show the villain in the very first scene, right? Or have you, you know, know what you're up against early on? So that was, you know, amazing. But of course, this was shot on film. And as the story, as the legend goes, um, <laughs> one of the trays of film had become, I guess, waterlogged. And there's this, I don't know who the person was in Spielberg's camp, might've been Spielberg himself, was on a flight, commercial flight, obviously, this is the days before you've got these huge budgets for, for private jets for the execs and, and the folks who work beneath them. This guy's in a commercial flight with a, I think a bucket, a large container, of seawater in it and this film kind of sitting in it. And they deliver it to California where they're able to, to treat this in some kind of way that allows them to preserve the film. I don't know how or what they did. I don't even know if, you know, how much of that particular role was used in the movie, that reel rather was, was used in the movie. Um, but for some reason, this was a critical uh, reel and they were able to salvage some of it, I'm sure it's not the whole movie on one reel, um, but the, enough of this reel to, to, to incorporate, uh, to edit into the movie. 
And it's like, wow, just, you know, hearing about that, hearing about the, you know, the, the failed animatronics, hearing about this guy named Spielberg who most folks had not heard of, who was kind of uh, banking his whole career on this film being made. Because if it ends up being a flop, if it ends up, you know, uh, being a huge burden on the studio, would he ever get another chance? Like all this stuff's on the line with this film in this kind of bucket of salt water. And of course the rest is history. It goes on, goes on to be a, the first summer blockbuster and his name, you know, uh, is I guess, Mr. 80s blockbuster film um, with you know, the, the film, the subsequent films. Um, yeah, this amazing story about how Spielberg and Jaws kind of came to be the iconic folks who they are. Folk as in Spielberg, thing is in Jaws or the movie. Yeah, you mentioned uh, sort of uh, uh, Roy, Sh uh, Roy Scheider and uh, sort of he sort of uh, sort of heads this amazing cast. Uh, like, you know, they weren't, uh, I don't know how big, uh, you know, the other, uh, you know, you know the, the principal cast was, but they are just, they just work amazingly together. And there's also behind the scenes stories there yeah. about, uh, especially between uh, Robert Shaw and uh, uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're sort of uh, both, uh, uh, on-screen chemistry matched what was going on between them uh, off-screen as well, and uh, there's there, there, there's a lot uh, there. But uh, it's just an incredible cast of uh, really just uh, you know not not you know uh, you know macho uh, not macho men, especially what you would probably uh, you know mid '70s blockbuster. You know you had a lot of uh, disaster movies with uh, you know. Uh, um, with huge, with huge, with huge stars at the time, but uh, these were all yeah, like very talented character actors, especially uh, the three principal, uh, Roy Scheider, uh, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw. Uh, they and they work incredible together um, because, again, as you as you pointed out, the, the shark really isn't the main character. It's more of this camaraderie that develops and uh, this chemistry that develops between the the, uh, the three men. And uh, you know, the, it's you know, it, it harkens back to the you know the old war movies of uh, men on a mission. You know, and we're going to go out and uh, and, and try to take down this shark that's been just terrorizing this community um but uh uh and you also mentioned uh you know the the effect sort of of uh of jaws especially on the audience that uh the, the huge audiences that started to go in the, the uh the um the fear that uh, instilled in them of just taking a bath. <laughs> some, uh, you know, some people just uh, couldn't uh, couldn't take baths anymore because they were afraid. That, uh, much like yourself, uh, if uh, a shark could get into Lake Michigan, a uh, shark would uh, swim up the pipes into their own uh, into their own bathrooms and uh, you know attack them. Um, and that's just how effective uh, that uh, th this was back in the back when it first came out. Uh, it, it was. It, and part of that is because they uh, they hold back, you know, they the, they hold back on the money shot uh, for so long, uh, you know, because of technical reasons, uh, you know, behind the scenes uh, sort of problems. But uh, it really is ingenious uh, that uh, uh, Spielberg was just able to take a, you know, a huge just, uh, you know, uh, because uh, I believe they were banking on, you know, seeing the shark throughout, uh, yeah. you know, I think the first scene, in fact, you do see like a full shark, you know, it's, uh, uh, you're supposed to see it, uh, you know, attack Chrissy, uh, you know, uh, right in that first scene, but instead it's, uh, and you know, that, that would have, probably would have been effective for the time, um, 
you know, just uh, because they're, you know, this is probably Spielberg's homage to creature features of that he grew up in the in the 40s and 50s. And, uh, you know, you see the, you know, you, you actually see the, the, the giant spiders, you see the giant hands and everything in those. But in, uh, in this one, he had to sort of improvise and uh, come up with a new solution and that works outstandingly well uh, throughout uh, uh, in uh, sort of the, the you know, uh, it, 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 and it does work, it, it works incredibly incredibly well because uh it's you really focused in on the terror on everybody's faces it, mm -hmm. it's a re, you really uh stay with these characters and you see that uh 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 just how just how much this is uh, this is affecting uh you know their uh the community and uh their families at large um i take that opening scene you know where the shark was supposed to uh be present but wasn't Again, you, for me, and it's hard to say this, and it's almost, you know, um, well, yeah, anticlimactic. I mean, because you see the scenes, especially with, with uh, Quint, the Robert Shaw character, um, where you see the most you'll ever see of the shark um, <laughs> attacking and actually dining on Quint. Um, that, of course, is horrifying, but the table is being set with that first scene. It's like, do you have the Quint scene? Do you have that without the table being set, without the audience being primed for, okay, this is what you're up in for uh, uh, in this movie. And it's the fact you don't see the shark in that scene and the woman, of course, I guess you said you knew her name. I don't know the woman's name. I've seen it a billion times. I don't know her <laughs> name, but, um, the fact that she moves in and out of frame the shark's moving this lady around it's not just coming up and biting her it's he's he's toying he's manipulating with her um he, he's got you know full control of her and if it had been simply a shark comes up and bites her and she dies that's one thing but no she's got this you know uh it seems like an eternity of, of, of time being just attacked tormented manipulated moved around the water by this shark and that's like and, and for me that's what really kind of cemented it because um along with the bite of the shark the idea that um you could not have control over your body or that you could be dragged possibly underwater and, and, and drown or, or suffer i mean it's not just being bitten right um he masterfully again pulls the character uh in the water in and out of the frame uh, and you just feel almost like her, like helpless in a way. Like you, you can't assist her. Um, and you just wonder what must that be like to know that death is pretty much imminent. Um, and it might be a little longer of a process than you would have expected. So yeah, that was fantastic the way that scene was shot. And it's only be out of um, um, necessity that it was shot that way. Well, I shouldn't should say out of necessity that they didn't have the shark. But it was brilliant to have her move in and out of the frame. It could have been just a wide shot of her being pulled underwater or whatever. But no, the how it was done in terms of where she fits in the frame and moving in and out was, was masterful. Uh, and to your point of the impact of the movie itself, um, Jaws didn't just create the blockbuster, but it also spawned many you know, derivative uh, features, right? I mean, I can think about, you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> being a kid and not understanding how the industry or any industry worked, but quickly thereafter seeing other similar movies where you have you know a menacing animal or a, or a pod of of whale, whatever any animals um, that can be a menace to sorry society. <laughs> movie reference uh, animal that could, could cause havoc um they'd make it there was like the ivory ape and there was ants and there was frogs and night of the leapers with the rabbits and there's just all this stuff uh that was coming out as a result of, of trying to kind of hit that uh sweet spot that jaws did and it hit the imagination of people who would find themselves in nature having to contend with um animals who have lost their fear of humanity um so it didn't just create the blockbuster, it also created a decade or more uh, of films like that, that were sometimes decent, most times bad, uh, movies about attacking animals. I just think, uh, my gosh, Steven Spielberg should have gotten a cut of all those films because he, he basically spawned all of them. Mm -hmm. No, oh, we talked about you know uh, zombie movies uh, last podcast, and uh, yeah, the, this you know, Jaws certainly uh, you know sparked a craze of uh, monster movies, you know, or you know uh, more modernized version of monster movies uh, that were definitely heavily influenced by Jaws. Uh, whether that's just uh, you know uh, just in story, or whether just uh, you know picking whole scenes and just sort of uh, redoing them in. Uh, uh, you know, uh, ripping off or homaging, if you will, uh, the, the entire, uh, the entire script. But, um, yeah, you, uh, mentioned that sort of the, the, uh, the filmmaking and I, I think, uh, it has to, uh, I mean, it, it's been done to death, but, uh, you know, we have to kind of mention it. Uh, John Williams music is just, uh, this is probably the first score, you know, this is pre star Wars. This is probably the first score that probably people noticed, uh, well, this, uh, you know, this guy is really trying to like uh, up the game in terms of uh, uh, putting music to uh, emotion and, uh, you know, the images on screen. And, uh, you know, it started a long, uh, long time collaboration that has uh, given us great film scores uh, throughout the, the 50 years or so. And uh, I yeah it's uh that, that ends up also being a, a a proxy for the shark too I mean, because you know i tell you i mean everyone knows that i mean it, it, it's perfect because again you don't have to see the shark you know the shark's coming um it builds up to a crescendo it's, it suggests you know that okay He's in great, increasing speed or intensity, or he's closing in on his target. It's just masterful in the way that that was used um, without having a the shark there. Again, with the shark being there, I think it, it, it lessens the, the, the suspense and the tension. Um, so again, the combination of music and not having a shark gets the audience ready and primed. They're just waiting. You're, by the time the shark actually emerges in the movie, folks have been itching to see this damn shark. <laughs> right and it's all because they built it up throughout the movie it's just amazing um that you know that was the case i had one more thing i just lost it oh you know we talk about films being um kind of derived from the the the, the template that, that spielberg created with jaws i'll flip it i'll say this you know i remember being a kid and begging to see this movie in the theaters and again i'm single bitches i'm like five years old 
And my mom is saying to me, what? Like, I want to go to the movies. Oh, you want to go see Moby Dick? Like, well, no. What are you talking about? That's Moby Dick. That's like these guys on a quest to hunt down. She calls it a whale. It's not a whale. It's a shark. It's the same idea, right? Um, in this case, trying to hunt it down because it's been uh, wreaking havoc on the, the, the livelihood of folks on the beach and the hunting and so the fishing people, um, the economy of the town, and of course, the lives of the people there. But for her, she just jumped to the chase. For her, the connection directly was was Moby Dick and Captain Ahab. So it's, 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 so it's not you know Quint heading the ship. It's Captain Ahab, um, that Ishmael there, I, I guess, in the form of, I don't know if that would be uh, the Roy Scheider or the um, Dreyfus character. But, you know, the point is, I guess the theme, the idea of hunting this being in the water uh, is older than, than Jaws. Um, and it's almost like a, a, a variation on the Moby Dick uh, theme. So, I mean, as much as this is derivative, I guess on some level, Melville owed, owed, is owed some, some um, I guess, royalties as well. Mm -hmm. No, there's definitely a uh, Captain Ahab uh, sort of uh, feel with uh, Quint, uh, certainly. Uh, I mean, you definitely get that feel with his character. Um, so yeah, there's definitely uh, uh, homages, if you will, with uh, sort of classical literature there. Um, I, I would also think, uh, yeah, that, that there's also definitely a, a, a sort of a, almost a Western sensibility. I, you know, I mentioned the, you know, the men in the mission, but you know, it's the old Western trope of uh, uh, the town being terrorized by an outside force, and then uh, these uh, these men, you know, you gather up these 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 men in order to try and fight it off. You know, seven samurai, if you will, almost. Say Kurosawa would be upset. There you, you say, go. Yeah, the Kurosawa. <laughs> Kurosawa. I'm sure. I would love to see. I would have seen a Kurosawa monster movie. That would have been great uh, if he had maybe taken over the Godzilla franchise at one point or another. But uh, that's neither here or there. Um, that, but uh, you, you know, we talked about the, the you know, the uh, the intro, which it, which is outstanding, which is well, it, it's a, it's a great setup for the entire movie and uh, Jaws, the creature itself, uh, sort of like this unseen force under the water that's going to drag you to your, you know, to your grossly like horrible death. Uh, and, uh, but uh, probably my favorite, it, it doesn't even have, well, okay, there is a little bit of, uh, you know, build up music, but I just love that the, the um, uh, the Kittner kid, uh, you know, uh, when uh, the Kittner kid sort of uh, attack that that entire scene is just um, it, it's mass. That's also, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, this this is masterful filmmaking uh, because you take a um, uh, just a normal, you know, every beach day for, you know, just uh, New Englanders and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, Roy Scheider is trying to go around warning people, but uh, to no avail. Uh, they all just want to, you know, they just don't want to have their beach day with their family. And, uh, you know, everyone's like um, playing around. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the terror starts when the dog goes missing, you know, and then uh, you certainly get the feeling that the dog is, uh, <laughs> has been uh, taken by Jaws because, and uh, that that music starts swelling a little bit and then um, uh, goes 
right up to uh, a pair of legs swimming and it turns out to be the, this little kid that we've seen that has been established before. And then uh, we get that, you, you know, uh, we talk about Hitchcock homage, we get that Dolly zoom on uh, Scheider's face when he realizes all the things that he's been worried about have now are now, they're not only, you know, real, but they're right in front of him, like literally maybe 20 feet away and just devouring this kid and just a, just a stream of blood that's like coming up which is i mean again this is like this is a pg folks back in the i think it was pg back in the, the 70s so i mean if you were um if if you're if you're 12 and up uh this was uh, you know this was the mpaa's idea of a good time for you uh just a kid being just devoured you know and being dragged to to, to his death uh um, but that that entire scene, that entire buildup, yeah, uh, I know Mark wants to chime in. But that, that that scene, though, I mean, you mentioned the Hitchcockian zoom in, but at the same time, there's also something about that scene that um, people talk about films, like the overall films and pacing of a film. There's also within a given scene, many times there's a certain um, rhythm to a scene. Right, and to get it right, it's not just catching it, you know, on film, but it's the editing that goes into making everything kind of click. You can almost put it, set it to a metronome, right? So you got things are happening on beat, and that helps build the tension. You know, the, the kids splashing in the water, uh, um, Shider's character trying to warn people, um, and there's still like uh, I, mean, I don't know how to even deconstruct how that scene was done, but you can feel the rhythm there. And you know that on, on the beat, something's gonna happen. Um, to take me outside of this movie and to take it completely out of the, this, this um, genre. But there, there's several times that stick out in my mind where you can set a metronome to it in film. Um, and, and one of those is the opening scene for um, The Dark Knight metronome. Put, put that metronome on and just watch that on the beat, certain things are happening. And that's how this jaw scene is there um, when the kid gets attacked on the beach. Um, you set, a, you set a, a metronome to it and it's perfect. And it's not just, again, capturing it on film, but whoever did the editing, um, both visual and sound editing, I mean, it's, it's, it's a collaboration. That, that is what filmmaking is. In, in, in a nutshell, it's everybody working together to make this thing this one particular scene happen and then to think about how that one scene fits into the context of the entire movie right and how it moves the story forward too it, it is it's, it's perfect and oh my gosh i just wish you know the folks who've not seen the movie and of course it's been on tv it's always you know on at some point um for free on cable you don't have to pay for it but um i'll just say this one thing and it ties into the scene and ties into the movie entirely I've watched this movie a gazillion times. What's apparent to me is the difference in the pacing of this film as compared to modern movies. And I'm, my, my fear is that people who are of a younger generation won't fully enjoy this movie because it is a much slower pace than the modern movies are. It must, it must be like people were, were, would say to me when I was a young kid, go watch this movie from the 1940s or whatever. And they're okay, whatever. And I'll, I'll watch the movie and the pace is a lot slower. And while I appreciated it, I don't have the same appreciation as somebody who watched it at the time. So as much as I gush over this movie, I gush as jaws biting somebody, but as much as I gush over this movie, I'm wondering if 
subsequent generations appreciate it as much as I. All the stuff I'm talking about is not, I don't think, seen as masterful because folks are just waiting for something to happen. They're just waiting because their 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 appetite is different. Their their attention span is different. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'll mention uh, the the uh, film editor is uh, Verna Fields. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, she helped out with uh, both uh, George Lucas and uh, Spielberg's uh, you know early work. Uh, unfortunately, Jaws was her last. It looks like, according to IMDb, her last movie. Uh, you know, and uh, she passed away a few years later. But yeah, remarkable uh, job on that. And you talk about the sort of the, the collaborative na uh, nature of uh, film and the, the, like, all that comes together in these scenes that we're talking about, you know, music, editing, uh, and directing, certainly. Uh, and they all, we all go on that metronome. They all go on, you know, that there's a rhythm to these scenes that, uh, you know, that, that play out so well that, uh, you know, that, that they play on your senses, they get under your skin sometimes. But uh, uh, they work in perfect, uh, perfect harmony together. Yeah, you mentioned sort of uh, modern sensibilities, and uh, I guess that's that, that's uh, uh, sort of a, a good segue into my pick. Um, uh, you know, definitely not not anywhere near in the same uh, same ballpark as uh, as Jaws, but uh, it is a important movie from my from my own childhood. Uh, Independence Day, uh, you know, from '96, uh, and. Uh, uh, the main reason why is, uh, you know, I, growing up, uh, you know, in the Midwest, uh, there was, uh, uh, you know, there was, uh, there were still a few working uh, drive, uh, drive-through movies. Uh, thankfully, have gotten a little bit of a resurgence in the last year or so, um, and this is the perfect movie to see on a, in a, on a back lot or, uh, you know, big outdoor screen. Uh, you know, back in the '90s, uh, because this, yeah, the, you know. Uh, this definitely um, the quick, yeah, as you mentioned, sort of the, the quick tempo, you know, let, let's get, uh, uh, let's get things going and quick uh, sort of a sensibility of movie making that's sort of started in the nineties. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it, yeah, I, as I said, it's definitely not anywhere near in the same league as Jaws, but uh Independence Day still is, you know, it's it, it it's a it's a nostalgic touchstone for myself because uh, it's definitely one of the ones that um, was made me aware of like what can be shown on a in a uh, what, what can be done with special effects and what can be done with uh, sort of um, a. a uh, Taking a taking an old taking an old idea, you know, the alien invasion movie, but just upping it to uh, with uh, just upping it to an to a different sort of uh, degree, uh, and uh, you know, I'll I'll always uh, attest that it, it sort of uh, helps. Was one of the formative movies in my. Uh, um, uh, sort of personal filmography of uh, of movies that sort of helped uh, build my film taste and sensibility. Yeah, so I remember seeing that one in the theater, um, not in the drive-in, but it's typical, you know, uh, movie theater. Um, really impressed uh, by it. Um, and just to be a little bit uh, tangential, um, it did begin the, as you talked about Jaws being, um, kind of sparking a, a, a movement, this one certainly sparked a movement of movies that had ensemble casts that have uh, that, that end titles ended the word day. 
<laughs> Valentine's Day. Well, I'm just kidding. But there's a that, that, that those series of movies in the '90s that had or late early 2000s. We have ensemble cast that are not good, but this is good. This is a good movie. Um, yeah, it just again the disaster pick. Um, seeing uh, the White House destroyed on camera. I mean, and done in a way with the special effects that made it look extremely realistic. Um, it it did show just how far um, the technical side of films of film uh, had come because. Um, Again, just to kind of make a comparison uh, with Jaws and the faulty um, technology there, even when it was working in Jaws, the shark certainly didn't look real when it was eating Quint, right? When its head pops out of the water, yeah, but when the whole body is out, you can tell something's kind of iffy or off. With CGI, you know, at least the CGI of, of Independence Day, things looked incredibly realistic. Um, and I can't think of another movie um, prior to that that it kind of infused realistic CGI, maybe Jurassic Park. But even with that, sometimes um, the lighting was a little bit off on some of the dinosaurs that, you know, they have multiple light sources on them. <laughs> you could tell they were created um, from a computer. Um, they were really great with Independence Day in the, in the CGI of not having those multiple light sources that always are the giveaways that this is not really in front of you. Um, to, to, to weave in uh, kind of this ensemble cast, all these characters, all these various things happening within the movie uh, and still have it be coherent because there are a lot of characters in there, a lot of kind of uh, side stories and, and whatnot. Um, I think it's, it's, it's the, one of the perfect um, escapes for the summer to, to go to the film and just lose yourself um, in the film and not worry about how plausible something is, but just realize that what's on the screen um, is someone's creation and it looks credible. The, the images look real. And I think for me, that's the biggest thing that, wow, this is um, technically um, just, it, it shows the amount of commitment, effort. And again, just how far the technology had, had come at that point. Mm -hmm. This was sort of the last uh, sort of huge, big budgeted uh, movie that incorporated uh, huge, uh, you know, miniatures, you know, practical sets and uh, pyrotechnics instead of, uh, you know, the uh, changeover to digital and uh, CGI. Um, they, yeah, they blended it uh, very well with uh, the, the CGI and the, the modeling and the, the practical effects, uh, sort of the last big budgeted movie that did that. And uh, that, that's sort of another sort of a hallmark of this. Uh, but um, so again, I, I have to, pre I have to uh, preface that it's definitely, there's, it's definitely dated in some aspects, definitely with some characterizations and uh, uh, definitely with uh, some sensibilities but uh, I mean, it's sort of an encapsulation of the mid nineties, uh, you know, especially in terms of filmmaking in terms of, uh, uh, of uh, well, big, I should say big budgeted filmmaking in the nineties uh, was sort of, uh, uh, especially action movies where uh, you didn't get sort of the, uh, sort of the charismatic charms of, uh, of, um, 
you didn't you didn't get the sort of the, well no, I shouldn't say that there shouldn't you, didn't, you don't get the same sort of charisma as uh, the 80s and early 90s uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of action heroes uh, here so you have multiple choices you have uh, Will Smith Jeff Goldblum uh, Bill Pullman you have multiple choices uh, sort of to try to uh, try to hang your hat on but uh, instead of uh, instead of one sort of uh, 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 one John McClane or one Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of uh, they're giving you a whole, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, whole buffet to choose from. Uh, and then I, w I would say probably none of them are really, uh, I think uh, Will Smith, of course, brings a lot of uh, 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 a lot of in a lot of good charisma and good characterization. Well, uh, yeah, good characterization and his part. But I think that's mostly because it's just Will Smith. It's not uh, the character that he's playing at the moment on screen. Playing but, Will Smith. It seems like he's playing Will Sue. Yeah, he's just yeah. playing. Well, I mean, this was his first. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was his first big movie, and yeah. uh, you know, thankfully, uh, did uh, lend to a, a, a good career. Um, he successfully transitioned from TV, Fresh Prince, and uh, uh, he definitely shows uh, the sort of uh, you know, fighting aliens would be sort of his deal for at least another movie, <laughs> a few movies with the Men in Black. Uh, so, and I. Uh, he ruled the box office for a number of years afterwards because of the, the strength of this and uh, the, how how big this sort of uh, impacted uh, the end of the year uh, box office returns. And this film is a, yet another case of leaving well enough alone. There's no need for a sequel. <laughs> we had another uh, sequel. Mm -hmm. I've not seen in its entirety. Uh, I, I, I tried to watch it on TV, it, I, it couldn't, it, it, I found it to be unwatchable and I don't think that a lot of movies are unwatchable, um, but certainly, you know, it's a cash grab. Um, it's it's sad that that's the case. Um, of course, Jaws would have its own set of sequels too. Uh, I think the second one being decent, Jaws 2. Um, I was foolish enough as a teen off of my nostalgia for Jaws to see Jaws 3D, as it was called. They called it Jaws 3, but it was called Jaws 3D when it came out in the theater. A combination of my, my nostalgia for Jaws and wanting to see a 3D movie, which did not exist uh, during that era. They, they were huge in the 1950s. They had died out, um, maybe early 60s, died out. By the mid-80s, you couldn't find a 3D movie. So the combination of nostalgia for Jaws, wanting to see a 3D movie, Pulled me into the theater. I knew from the, the promos it was going to be a horrible movie. I, I, I knew that, but I wanted to see a 3D movie. So I saw Jaws 3D was absolutely horrible. And then like the complete abomination, Jaws the Revenge. My God, like, no, <laughs> stop, no more. You know, they, uh, they could have really left it at Jaws, the original one. I'll accept Jaws 2, but everything after that, no, should have left it alone. Um, of course, there, there are movies like Deep Blue Sea that kind of riff off of the Jaws thing. Um, um, TV movies, Sharknado. I think all these things tie into the, the granddaddy Jaws. Um, but much like Jaws, Independence Day should have kind of left it at one uh, movie. So, I mean, I can go on with maybe another example or two for like, some of our movies that, that, that really um, are in some ways iconic. Um, and for me, um, as, as much as Jaws kind of defined my single digits to early teen years in terms of a summer movie and how it shaped uh, my viewing of movies, by the time I was a mid-teen, 
another movie came out, totally different genre, but really captured what I was feeling at the time, um, being a Midwestern kid um, in high school, much like the main character was. And that is a movie that was set in Chicago, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that was for me, that is, um, at least on film, that's 80s teen suburbia. And that is it, that, that, that kind of exemplifies, at least on film, what it was meant to be, 80s teen um, um, summer movies. Uh, it's, it really came to, 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 to shape what I kind of thought life would be like at going through my teen years, I was mid-teen at that point. And um, it, it really kind of uh, cemented the career of Matthew Broderick, um, who has done much since then. I think nothing on the level of, but uh, hey, I mean, most folks don't get a blockbuster movie, you know, under their belt as actors. He has at least that one and a few others. Um, you know, summer, another summer movie with, with Matthew Broderick was, of course, the Godzilla. I won't go there, but um, yeah. So Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and given that um, you're a Chicagoan, uh, Jeff, any connection to Ferris Bueller at all? I know it's before your childhood. I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of uh, formative Chicago, you know, kid viewing, uh, you know, you sort of have to see it because uh, they kind of it's a travelogue for Chicago. It's really a, almost a tourism uh, a brochure, a video brochure, if you will, for uh, Chicago, because they go to all the sites, uh, Wrigley Field, uh, uh, the, not the Met, uh, the art, the art, um, the art exhibits uh, and uh, you know they you know they they prayed down Main Street, basically uh, Madison Ave, pretty much. And uh, so I mean that's that's almost uh, that's almost a video VHS that you have to watch as uh, as a teen as a teen growing up, at least in the definitely even I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago. So that, I mean that's even more close to home. But yeah, no, I, uh, the Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I, I think one of my favorite John Hughes uh, certainly. Um, sort of coming of age uh, uh, 80s movies that uh, sort of uh, uh, really uh, uh, sort of uh, define both um, uh, Matthew Broderick and uh, John Hughes careers for a while. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely up there. Uh, yeah. Um, I will say that the character, his buddy Cameron, um, while I guess he's a Chicagoan as well, was smart enough to represent uh, Detroit in <laughs> Gordy Howe jersey. Detroit, I really appreciated seeing Gordy Howe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we get uh, uh, get, the, get the Detroit representation in there. That, yeah. uh, that's good. The whole Midwest uh, gets a little bit. Um, they, yeah. So we kind of talked about the sort of the blockbusters uh, with uh, both uh, uh, Jaws and uh, Independence Day, sort of two different eras of blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, yeah, when we uh, sort of uh, go into uh, more uh, uh, nostalgic choices. Uh, uh, yeah. So Ferris uh, Bueller's it's a very good sort of uh, coming of age, uh, coming of age '80s comedy, and um, mine would be a '90s coming of age movie, uh, but said in the 50s uh sandlot uh definitely uh the the movie when i think about when i i, I think of like summer it's sort of uh, uh just 
defines it sort of uh, it covers all the bases, if you will, of uh, of, uh, of just uh, a kid summer. You know that that uh, school's out and uh, you have uh, three months to yourself, uh, sort of, and your friends and uh, um, uh, playing ball and getting in trouble and. Uh, Sort of uh, and uh, getting out of the biggest pickle uh, that you that you've ever been in. Uh, that's uh, that's that sort of just uh, is just encapsulates everything about uh, a great American summer. Yes, yes, certainly. I remember seeing that. Um, and you know, being a kid who played little league baseball um, and would sometimes have pickup you know baseball games too at a park not that far from my house. Um, yeah, I, had, I really relate to that, even though I was not around in the 50s, I could relate to just coming together and playing ball, you know, the, the, which is now, I guess, a lost art of kids just kind of organically, just impromptu, just boom, let's just get together and play. We don't have to plan a play date or put it on someone's calendar. No, we're walking outside, there's the field, you see kids out there, you join them in a game of pickup baseball. There's something lost about that, that, that uh, you know, it's kind of saddening, uh, uh, I find kind of depressing that kids don't do that around anything. It seems it's just like, okay, we've got to plan everything. Like, no, you're not little executives, be a kid. This is about being a kid. The Sandlot really did a great job of just capturing what it's like to be a kid uh, in the summer uh, with your friends, you know, playing baseball, even talking about some of the, the, the mythical players in the past, uh, not mythical, but legendary uh uh, Babe Ruth, or um, you know, the idea, the specter of what it means to 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 hit a ball over the wall. Like, oh no, um, there's a monster that's going to eat your ball, or resides behind the wall, which is a, a metaphor for oh no, we've lost our last ball, or, or we can't afford to lose balls, which is a, a amazing. But yeah, Sandlot certainly a great uh, summer flick, and it's family friendly. It, so there's no you know, shark eating kids. <laughs> um, like fun kids to cut school like Ferris Bueller. And you're not going to be afraid of aliens coming and attacking you. So this is fun for the whole family. Mm -hmm. uh, another, if I, if I could kind of um, like talk about another summer movie that was, for me, uh, life-changing in the sense of what I thought the potential for movies could be that's in the same way that, that Jaws was. Um, it's a movie that, that um, kind of ends my teenage years. Uh, it's, and again, for me, what makes these movies important to me is that you know, I'm going through a particular period in my life that's kind of in lockstep with what's happening in the movie, or at least I'm coming into an understanding of the world. Uh, um, and, and, and for me, in 1989, um, there was a film, Oscar snub, Do the Right Thing, um, that is like the summer movie of that era, right? It captures life in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn uh, on a, the hottest day of the year, the racial tensions that were happening. And also you can think about it as being, um, I don't know, a, a precursor to what we're dealing with now in terms of racial tension, but we know that these things are cyclical. They come uh, back and around every so often that, Pendulum sw swings one way, and 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 uh, you know, even though the tension uh, for those who are marginalized is a constant, where we see it coming to a head is cyclical. Where we see it coming to the point where action will be taken, or that you know they say the streets get hot or whatever, the people get activated, 
uh, into movement is 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 on a certain you know again rhythm again. So uh, Spike Lee's uh, fantastic, do the right thing. Damn it, driving Miss Daisy. Oscar snub. Um, he still he's he's owed something for that. Still, they have to go back and and and, and change this this snatch it away from uh, Jessica Tandy and uh, Morgan Freeman. I guess once he passes, at some point they'll say, okay, let's, let's take it away from Morgan Freeman and give it to Spike. Of course, he's an actor. But anyway, um, do the right thing for me. Uh, show the potential of, of movies to discuss um, tension and the lives of people that was more realistic, of course, than any of the films we've discussed already. There, there's some, there's some, some fantasy and some fantastical elements to all those films you mentioned before, even The Sandlot, where Do the Right Thing is like, uh, of course, it's scripted, but it's realistic in the way that you know people interact and the tensions that are there. I think that Spike Lee did a phenomenal job with that one. 1989, The Number, Another Summer, Sound of the Funky Drummer, as, as uh, Chuck D from PE starts in, in the movie. Man, that for me might be, uh, other than Jaws, the quintessential summer flick for me. Do the right thing. No doubt, yeah. Uh, it just encapsulates all the tension, you know, the uh, uh, all the types of tension, you know, racial and, uh, you know, just uh, going through uh, a hot summer on this Brooklyn block, uh, just trying to, just trying to make do. And uh, of course, uh, it uh, sort of uh, jump started uh, Spike Lee's career, you know, not in terms of, you know, Oscar, <laughs> Oscar recognition or anything like that, but in terms of uh, just recognition uh, for the public at large, that uh, here is a name to really look out for. Um, uh, yeah, it's it, uh, do the right thing. Uh, you know, I think we mentioned it uh, with uh, you know uh, whenever we talk about uh, Spike and his filmography, it always comes up because uh, yeah, he he absolutely just uh, he uh, put his sort of uh, his unfiltered vision, you know, as he always does. But he definitely uh, uh, put his uh, unfiltered vision on screen, and uh, you know, for um, for people to sort of uh, either. Uh, empathize or not empathize with uh, certain characters in certain uh, situations, uh, but he put it out there and uh, for uh, to to help uh, either start uh, discussion or you know just put awareness and uh, you know as he as he does so well in all of his work, but um, yeah that, I mean, yeah it is definitely a summer movie. It's definitely uh, uh, you just. Uh, the, the way that Ernest Dickerson films the block, you know, you can just feel the heat and you can, you can see the sweat, you know, you can see the sweat on the actors and, and everything. You could just feel the heat. Uh, that's, uh, and of course it's a metaphor for the, the boiling of racial tensions. It's uh, slowly, 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 slowly getting to the, that point when, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the frog can't take it. Uh, the frog is either going to jump out or, uh, just uh, die in boiling water, and uh, I think that's uh, you know to, to use sort of that that kind of metaphor. Um, yeah, it, it that it's a that's a great pick. It's a great pick. Yeah. Just think about. I mean, not only did it really like announce like I've arrived. You know, Spike Lee. Of course, he had um, um, school days before that, and then a, a kind of a shorter um, in, um, NYU um, film school flick, um, Joe's Bedside Barbershop. Um, but it announced the arrival of kind of Spike Lee, um, of John Turturro, 
of uh, Giancarlo Esposito, um, Samuel Jackson. I mean, all these folks, you know, were in this movie. And um, I can't say it, it, it made their careers, but it certainly opened the eyes of those who were casting movies to, to give them more opportunities. And those, those folks have gone on to have decades long careers and they're still active uh, right now. And of course, gave roles to uh, Ozzy Davis and Ruby D, where the great, uh, great roles, uh, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, sort of uh, gave them to um, for another type of audience to sort of see their work and uh, see see how the even even Rosie Perez, who you know, was able to spin that into a few more acting roles, and I guess she's still in things now. She's in some, um, yeah, I saw streaming a series um, on HBO, um, but. She was a choreographer at that time, um, but that was her kind of first foray, I believe, into acting. And then she's had many a role, maybe not plum roles, but many a role since then. We all said with this truncated version of, uh, do we want to do sort of final thoughts, maybe recommendation or more recommendation? We Ooh. See, I think of my um, movies I described as my recommendations. I'm hoping that mm. a lot of We've seen the movies anyway. These are iconic uh, films. Do the right thing. Jaws, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, so if they've not seen them, certainly go see those movies. You can find them almost anywhere. These are not like, obscure picks uh, at all. Sandlot, not obscure. Nor nor is Independence Day. Um, but I just you know, for me, I'm very nostalgic in that you know, I grew up in an era where. Uh, I guess the summer blockbuster began with my childhood. I don't even know what life was like before that wasn't around, obviously, but um, somebody with a different perspective would be able to talk about what, what summers were like before summer movies were, were huge. My thing is this, there's, there's a lesson there in all of this. In two of the movies that I suggested, both Jaws and um, Do the Right Thing, we're talking about young filmmakers who have become household names. I'm hoping that um, the industry kind of affords opportunities for young people uh, who are not the household names to be creative, be experimental, um, to make way for new voices. Because I think now with the, the summer tent pole um, kind of movie schedule, they're looking often I think to people who are well-established to move along the Marvel franchises or move along sequels to whatever movies are coming out. Uh, and I'm hoping that they're at least uh, able to be somewhat more um, uh, exploratory in, you know, how they select what projects are done and who's helming them. Yeah, throughout this, uh, we sort of have uh, done sort of the history of uh, of summer blockbusters at least at uh, uh, 20, 30 years or so, in uh, a variety of picks uh, that uh, you know, starting with the granddaddy of all Jaws, that uh, started the blockbuster summer craze, and uh, started. Uh, you know, put it re reshuffling the schedule for big studios of when to release things and uh, of uh, what what audiences to target and uh, to really grab the huge dollar, and um, and I think that 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 ran strong all the way up to Independence Day. Uh, uh, the, but um, you know, now of course it's uh, the superhero movies that uh, really dominate, and those are, you know, they're released. Uh, all throughout the year, uh, from starting from you know so around May all the way to you know the fall, uh, October, in uh, uh, the later months, but um, yeah, it, it would, but uh, we also talked about you know the smaller movies that uh, sort of the uh, um, 
made a huge impact uh, on uh, both our childhoods. And uh, um, it, it, it's, uh, I'll mention a, a few movies also that uh, sort of uh, harken back to, you know, nostalgia, childhood, uh, in a way, uh, Dazed and Confused, and um, American Graffiti, uh, you know, also a, uh, you know, the, the from this uh, Spielberg, Lucas, and uh, Coppola sort of uh, uh, team up uh, back in the, uh, back in the 70s when they were all friends and uh, going to film school. Um, and uh, But with both those movies, they, they're sort of, um, they're, they're trying to rekindle sort of that spark of youth, uh, you know, that uh, that sort of the, the time, whether that's uh, during the summer, or right at the beginning of summer with uh, American Graffiti, that uh, uh, just the carefree days and the, um, of when school just got out and uh, all, uh, you know, uh, everything was, everything was game. Everything, uh, you know, you could, uh, uh, you were there to make trouble, make mistakes and that everything. Of course, uh, you know, that's, that's always a nice nostalgia touch, uh, uh, touchstone, uh, you know, to go back to youth and to go back to the, uh, the long, those long summers that uh, with your friends and, uh, uh, you know, just make as much, uh, uh, make as much trouble as you can, make as many, um, make as many uh, um, uh, uh, detours in life, you know, before you know, the responsibilities of adulthood hit you all at, the, all at once. Uh, uh, but um, there's, yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, and, I, and I'm with you, I, I hope that uh, studios sort of give that sort of clout to other filmmakers too, that they're able to make these sort of, you know, uh, not, I wouldn't say experimental per se, but uh, not really, you know, action movie or superhero movie or just something that doesn't fit in neatly into a genre, you know, coming of age is probably uh, the one umbrella sort of thing that, uh, that connects them. But uh, yeah, it's a, movies that sort of really um that come from the heart and that come from a good place and that uh uh but at the same time they're able to uh uh you know um uh, comment on today you know it's like uh do the right thing uh, that's able to uh encapsulate sort of uh, what's going on you know uh but uh uh yeah uh, you know um some are, yes, and I think, you know, some of blockbusters are here to stay, at least for, uh, you know, who knows what the you know, reshuffling of, uh, uh, of movie uh, of movie releases and how that'll go down um, and uh, what productions will go in. But, um, yeah, I think there will always be, I think that I, I, I think that just goes to show there should be room for both, you know, the, ind the independence, the Jaws, and along with uh, the, the do the right things, uh, dazed and confused, and uh, sandlots, uh, you know, they, they should be uh, sort of uh, partnered together, to, you know, to give a better sort of uh, a better sort of choice for audiences, and uh, you know, to uh, uh, you know, to go out there and just uh, remember this, those uh, the, the summer season, uh, you know, whether that's uh, uh, for nostalgia purposes or just. Uh, um hanging out uh, i think that's uh i think that's an important thing i, I think that, that's a great thing that uh, these movies can do thank you as always for giving us a listen we hope you enjoyed our talk about some great movies that are perfect for this time of the year 
On our next podcast, we'll be talking about our favorite coming-of-age movies. So be sure to look out for that soon. Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast in the Screenwriters Group with a monthly donation by clicking on the support button in Anchor.fm. You can find Kenyatta and I hosting the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and on YouTube with our forum recordings. You can join us by RSVPing to a virtual peer-reviewing script meetup by using the link in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other of life's pursuits. Continue on staying strong.